Hello everyone, it's May 14th, 2019. This week SpaceX had a parachute test failure last month that we didn't know about. Also, Blue Origin is showing off their lunar lander, Blue Moon. It does look a little like a keg with legs, so bring your own orange slices and enjoy, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 210 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So how are we all doing? Uh, I'm going to do a Pathfinder game, my, my first Pathfinder game with this new group today. So what's a Pathfinder game? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it, oh sorry. It's uh, Dungeons & Dragons. But oh. So basically what happened was Dungeons & Dragons moved from, I believe, Edition 2.5 to Edition 3. And a bunch of people didn't like the changes that they made. So they said, okay, screw Dungeons & Dragons. We're going to go make our own RPG with whiskey and hookers <laughs> or uh, bl blackjack and hookers. <laughs> and so they, they made Pathfinder which is basically uh dungeons and dragons but like a older version mm -hmm. and so it's it's kind of interesting because now pathfinder has to make its own choices how how the game is going to develop and so they uh they're getting ready to publish the second edition and so this group that i'm going to be playing with plays in the um second edition play test which is like, which is like a beta test where the rules like change constantly as they're trying to figure out what works and get mm -hmm. feedback from players um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, it's, it's just Dungeons and Dragons with a different name. So since I don't play, I'm not sure about the difference here, but is this basically that just like when we play lasers and feelings, there's like a little sheet that says like, mm -hmm. you know, what the rules are. And so that changed because I always thought that when you play D and D, it was kind of just up to the individuals, how they wanted to play, uh, which I guess it still is, but I guess not because there's like, yeah. you know, this like official rule book. It, it's, it's the difference between trying to think of a good analogy basically the the rule book tells you what the structure of your game is going to be but then you find stories inside that structure so like for our game tonight i know that i'm playing uh, a halfling cleric i know the background of my character i know what my character's abilities are i know that when i go into combat i'm going to use um, certain spells and mm -hmm. um, when somebody attacks me I know how my hit points react and how I defend against that attack but what I don't know is what kind of bad guys I'm going to be going up against I don't know why I'm going to be fighting these bad guys mm -hmm. um, I might not even be getting into combat tonight because we're joining between big story arcs uh, my, my wife and I are joining between big story arcs, so we are probably going to start in a town somewhere, and we're going to have to figure out what the goal of this story is. And so while I know that when I'm in that town, I can use certain abilities to, you know, to do things inside that town, I don't know what I'm going to be trying to accomplish. So Pathfinder and Dungeons and Dragons are way more complicated than Lasers and Feelings. Like, Lasers and Feelings uh, <laughs> is one sheet of rules. Yeah, Pathfinder, I think the play the second edition playtest rulebook is like 300 pages long. And a lot of that is stuff that my character can't access. So like there are like 50 pages worth of spell descriptions, but I can only cast uh, spells that have uh, a certain quality. So I can look up in a list which spells I have access to. And that takes it down from, you know, like 400 spells down to like 70 spells. 
you know. So a lot of it's a lot of it's just for reference. Yeah, I mean it's mostly a reference document. The actual like mechanics don't take up that much room. And then there are like descriptions of what each different race can do, what each different class can do, um, how you can specialize different characters, how you level up your characters, that kind of thing. Sounds interesting. All right. You need cool. to cut all that out of the yeah. show. <laughs> Let's get a move on then to this week in spaceflight history. What was our clue and who are our winners? All right. So the, the clue from last week was how do you throw a party in space? You bring a plunger and a balloon. Um, we have th- uh, four winners. Uh, ben Haller, Chubby Turkosi and One True Sheep again. Gosh, that's such a good username. Um, and then we have a partial credit winner, still a winner for sure. Uh, it's Evan Cook. Um, on Twitter, Evan is Rockets and Music, and they have a link to a website, and the music is pretty darn good. So there's oh. your shout out. Uh, and I feel like that makes up for getting partial credit. All right. Uh, <laughs> this week in spaceflight is the 15th of May, 1963. It was the launch of Mercury Atlas 9. Uh, so on board, of course, was Gordon Cooper flying Faith 7. Uh, this was the last Mercury mission. It's also the last solo American flight. So obviously we've had Americans fly with Russians into space where it's just a single American, but we're talking about like an actual solo flight. So last week we talked about Freedom 7 and how Shepard uh, had a very long hold on the pad. Well, Faith 7, uh, the last flight, did have a urine collection device. And so this is uh, the first part of the clue was uh, Shepard actually put a plunger in the cockpit uh, before the launch attempt on May 14th, right? So May 15th was the actual launch. They uh, had a launch attempt on the, on May 14th. And yeah, so, so Gordon Cooper climbs into the cockpit and finds a plunger uh, with a remove before flight tag, which I think is fantastic. By the way, the system did work pretty well, uh, but it turned out to be really hard to change the urine collection bags uh, in the cramped compartment. Uh, but yeah, you got uh, the full credit we're able to name the actual plunger, not just that... Uh, that there was this joke, but like there was actually a plunger in the cockpit. Uh, obviously, it didn't end up flying to space, but <laughs> so uh, on the actual launch date uh, on the 15th, the launch went just fine. Um, but one of the things I, I noticed about this was this was the first Atlas to fly a human with their new uh, hypergolic igniter. So the hypergolic uh, igniter had been designed and like approved. Uh, years before this, but NASA didn't want to fly a human on it until it had some actual flight experience. Um, and so this is the, the, you know, pretty much the one and only time that, um, that a Mercury mission flew without hold down claims, I believe there, I mean, there, there may be some early Mercury capsules. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so um, basically up till now, the Atlas had to have hold down clamps because what they would do is they would use a pyrotechnic igniter shoved up inside the engine and you would uh, start the ignition and then start flooding propellants through and the whole engine would just come up to speed very quickly and you would then release the clamps and you'd be able to launch. The only thing is that it wasn't necessarily the smoothest way to bring an engine up to uh, flight pressures and to you know to, to get this thing ready to actually fly. So they had to have the hold down clamps in case there was a rough start. You didn't want 
you know, the vehicle jostling off the pad, then settling down and then taking off. Now, this hypergolic igniter got to use a wet start technique where they are actually able to fill the entire engine plumbing uh, with uh, propellant. So they were actually able to flow the propellants through the engine, and then they were able to dump uh, hypergolic propellants in and get everything to ignite because hypergolic propellants are able to do that. They're, they're able to mm-hmm. ignite while you have other propellants uh, in the combustion chamber. And because of that, it's a much smoother ignition and you don't need the hold down clamps. So they light the rocket and it takes off when it's ready to take off. Uh, once on orbit, uh, Mercury 9 did some cool stuff. Uh, they had a strobe beacon on board. So it's a small sphere with a bunch of xenon lamps on the outside. And they, you know, strobed on and off. So the idea was getting ready for Gemini. We're going to start doing uh, rendezvous on orbit. And at this point, we still had no idea how difficult that task was going to be. So they just wanted to see if we throw a strobe beacon out there, are we going to be able to spot it? Like this is best case scenario. It flashes very bright. Um, Mm -hmm. How well are we going to be able to see it? And uh, it took till the fourth orbit to actually be able to see it. But from then, the fourth, fifth, and sixth orbits, Gordon was able to see it every single orbit. And uh, he actually said something like, you know, yeah, we're just, you know, hanging out here uh, with my with my buddy. He, pro- he probably called it like a, the rascal or something. You know, it's it's the <laughs> 60s. But, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, we went through a, an orbital night and I saw it the entire time. It was, it was really easy to see. So that's good. Um, another experiment that they had on board was a drag balloon. This is the other half of the clue. So the clue spanned, you know, launch and orbit. I thought I was being a little clever, but <laughs> plenty of people got it. Um, so so they had this giant inflatable balloon. I mean, it, it was an actual balloon. Uh, it was made out of PET and it was painted neon orange. Um, so the thing inflates with nitrogen to 30 inches in diameter. That's uh, 762 millimeters. And... Uh, the idea was to use this thing to test drag on a body with a larger cross-section. Um, so they pay out this 100-foot tether, that's about 30 meters, and then they have a strain gauge on the vehicle side of the tether. And as they're flying, of course, the balloon is going to experience more drag than the higher or the, than the higher density, lower ballistic coefficient mercury capsule, and they can test how much strain is being put uh, on the cable. Uh, these high altitude experiments are are so interesting because we really we weren't sure what the height of the uh, of the atmosphere was, um, and mm-hmm. of course now we know that it, it's very high. <laughs> um, it, it really extends way out there. Uh, so, you know, it was a very successful mission, except for a couple of issues. First, the drag balloon, they couldn't get it to detach properly. Um, so they had to jettison more than just the, the tether. Um, they also had a main bus short. I, I totally forgot about this until I was uh, researching this topic. So while, uh, while he was on orbit, they had a short show up on the main bus and basically all of the automatic controls went offline, which really sucked because, you know, Mercury was was deorbited and landed on, on, on an automatic system. So on the ground, they had to build a manual checklist to how to land this thing and radio up the checklist. Um, while they were doing this, uh, the CO2 levels started to rise in the vehicle and Gordon got a little, he got a little stressed. I mean, he was put under pressure. He performed 
super well. I mean, he just held it together like a champ. Um, but he, he definitely was experiencing uh, a lot of stress, both physically and mentally. But anyway, he, uh, he got his checklist going. Uh, they had to um, give him a radio call to know when to fire the deorbit rockets. Um, like literally, okay, three, two, one mark on the radio to get him down in the right place. Um, and then he had to hold his attitude manually on the way down. And to do this, this is pretty cool. Uh, he looked out the window, uh, spotted constellations in the places that he wanted, and then he grabbed a marker and drew lines on the window so that he could glance out the window and just line up the constellations with his marks and make sure that he was in the, in the proper orientation. Uh, and that is early American space flight for you. Like that yeah. is so quintessentially the way we do things. I love it. And then, yeah, he, he landed uh, quite safely and everything was good. And, and that was the end of the, of the Mercury program. And we moved on to bigger and better things. You know, I hadn't really thought about like, what was, what was the most noteworthy thing about the very end of the program? Cause like, how do you know when you transition to the next phase, you know, which I guess you just, you know, map everything out and then you just follow the manual, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of how NASA well, does things. Well, they, but. they almost didn't fly uh faith seven. They, they almost went straight to Gemini, but they decided that they wanted to have uh, more experience with long duration missions before they went on to Gemini. Mm-hmm. So this was a whole day in orbit, which is something that we hadn't we hadn't yeah. done up to that point. And you know, it presented some interesting problems. Like Cooper really hated the food that they gave him, and he basically only ate because they told him to. He also barely slept for twenty four hours. He just took a couple of quick naps. I had trouble sleeping on a plane, let alone a spacecraft. Right. A spacecraft yeah. in zero G tumbling around the Earth. Sure, yeah. Can you imagine getting a cramp? in you know a tiny mercury mercury capsule like you couldn't stretch that limb out unless you like really moved your body to get just the right position like oh man that that i don't worry about claustrophobia mentally it's it's cramping and and physically that really would make me upset i think i've mentioned it before but i have that problem with my right leg i don't think i could Mm -hmm. do it like i mean i'm sure i would not be fit to fly just for that reason because i cramp up pretty badly and it starts Mm -hmm. to really hurt so i would have to like you know get up and walk around but you can't do that in mercury capsule for several reasons you can't do it in a soyuz you know like right now Mm -hmm. getting to space is the hard part and it's really Mm -hmm. cramped something like a dragon 2 i mean just look at how far things have come it's much much better it's st- i mean it's still cramped but yeah it's it is much compared much better compared to a soyuz it's yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah let's move on then to the clue for next week which looks like an easy one but i'm not so sure so what is that clue all right so i'm going to give you the clue i'm going to be very specific about what this is you need to tell me exactly why this clue applies i don't know this this might end up being a bad clue but we'll see uh so next week in 2008 the clue is wet soil is confirmed on mars i think it's a trap (laughs) (laughs) i'm very suspicious about this clue but maybe it'll be like you say right you need that specificity Mm -hmm. Uh, i'll see if i could be specific enough i'll give you my guess Oh, you're going to guess. Yeah, for sure. I I will. (laughs) Yeah. It just looks so easy that it can't be whatever we think it is. Okay. Right. All right. Well, with that in mind, tweet us with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Dragon has a parachute deployment failure or an off-nominal, and by that I mean what happens in an off-nominal situation. Well, the off-nominal 
situation was itself off nominal, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> oh. So, yeah, things didn't go well for this scenario where things are not supposed to go well. Things went worse. Yeah. yeah. So there was a problem with a parachute deployment, but the whole point of this test was to test what happens in the event of a chute failure. And you have four total, and then if one fails, you have the other three. Um, but apparently those three, or at least one of them, and this is what I'm not sure on, or was it all three did not deploy correctly? Yeah, it sounded like the, the other three did not operate properly. And then from there, they talked about how they didn't deploy. So it sounds like you know, it being a nice little cluster of shoots coming out at once, they might have just been tangled up and so none of them opened, was how I got, I read that. Is this the first test? I mean, they've done many parachute tests previously, but this is the first with this fourth shoot deployment failure, like if you don't have all four. They've done five, this is, they've done five successful parachute out tests. Okay. Where so one of them five. was purposely, yeah, messed up. But uh, apparently, I mean, you got to do better than, you know, five out of six when it comes to this. Mm -hmm. I guess there's no word on exactly what happened, though. Do you have any theories? Nope. Yeah, the, the only thing they talked about was where... Uh, it's kind of analogous to where we were when we first learned about the Dragon 2 explosion. Mm -hmm. Was, is it something about the way the test was set up, or is it something intrinsic to the parachute system itself? And at this point, they just, you know, they said it could be one of those two things, and they have no idea, or at least they're not talking about which one they think is more likely. So uh, we'll have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, I thought this was interesting that this wasn't something that SpaceX announced to us, but rather it was a NASA official during a congressional hearing. Um, apparently, one of the Congress folks knew about this and kind of asked them this loaded question about, uh, did you have an issue with your parachutes last April? That's right. Or last yeah. month. Yeah. And then the guy kind of... Uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer. Yeah, Bill Gerstenmeyer uh, yeah. was like, oh, well, uh, <laughs> we learned from it. Yeah. This is why we test. I mean, I suppose that they weren't going to go forward without fixing this problem anyway, but it's a bit strange that no one knew about it outside of, I guess, NASA and SpaceX because uh, this wasn't in the news at all. And well, cl clearly month, this right? Congress member knew about it. <laughs> right. So I suppose he got wind of it. The proper channels, back channels, I guess, yeah. to yeah. get that information. And, and it, it was the representative from Alabama, which, you know, steeped mm. in space so that makes sense what kind of data do you collect when you're doing a parachute out test i've never thought about it i feel like the best data would be to simply have a camera there to look at the parachutes and see how they're deploying and make sure that all that's going you know according to plan yeah and they they do have multiple cameras right they always have like more than one helicopter and then an upward looking camera and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff it's pretty easy to figure out what went wrong if the shoot just does not deploy because of a pyrotechnic bolt which doesn't go off or something but i don't think that, that mm -hmm. that's what happened in this case it looks like the shoots did deploy they just didn't fill out right so it hit with a fairly significant impact i think it did some significant damage and i don't know what they'll be doing with that dragon from this point forward oh but. i think i think it was just a test sled that they yeah. had on okay there. so mercifully this was because including the dragon explosion this is kind of like a one-two punch of <laughs> bad news for SpaceX, but at least there wasn't a one, two, three where they also had another Dragon capsule damaged in this test. And I guess at least this one didn't explode on impact with the ground. So. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why it would, but... Uh, Sam in the chat says, at least uh, what else is going on, the parachute thing is unlikely to delay the launch even more than it already was. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good which... point. 
<laughs> yeah, if, you're, <laughs> if you cluster everything together, at least you can get all your delays over with at once mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, nest some of those delays in each other. So if this took place, I mean, they didn't specify when it took place last month, but this could have been like, you know, wasn't the explosion last month as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I yeah, so. I suppose this could so have that, happened previously. Yeah. yeah. They could have happened like really close together, like potentially within, you know, a week or a couple of days for all we know. Well, that really just confirms the theory of a sniper. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It almost seems like it could be just a maybe a gust of wind, you know, and maybe that's right. what caused this problem. If it was a gust of wind, we're in trouble. <laughs> that's a good point. You're kind of already in trouble at this point with, you know, a shoot that doesn't deploy. So, mm -hmm. well, I, I mean, I that's, Although, that's kind of the point is like you, you have four parachutes so that you have, you know, you can land on three. So you bring four. I mean, you can land on two. It's just going to be yeah, less I was gonna comfortable. Say, yeah, exactly. My guess, I think, given how many other successful tests they've done, including, mm -hmm. again, five other parachute out ones that all mm -hmm. worked correctly, is that maybe when they were setting up these, uh, you know, whatever their sensor system was to measure the loads on them, it could have just been maybe a human error at some point. Well, I mean, the, the production version has got load sensors. Like, that's the thing that you need. I, I think you're pretty close. So I think... I think it's a packing issue because okay. um, that's the thing that's going to vary the most between these tests, right? Is, is the, mm -hmm. the human hands that are actually packing the, that's my guess. And it's not too far from yours, Dennis. That's the kind of thing that would seem to me that they would get right because you have, you know, professionals and they're dealing with millions of dollars of equipment and so forth. Like you'd think they could pack the shoot right. Well, you know, I mean, like... think that they could do everything right, but obviously that's not the case. Yeah. Someone has to do something wrong somewhere along the line in a complex mm -hmm. operation like that, that then gets hidden right because it mm -hmm. all gets tucked mm -hmm. away you can't once you've done it you can't check it i know but we'll see maybe you know maybe we'll we'll actually find out within a reasonable amount of time probably not mm -hmm. i guess we'll just have to wait and see on that one and let's move on to another story which this one's you know really cool so uh blue moon uh blue origin which I think once in a blue moon makes an announcement, and this was one of them. So, uh, um, I mean, that's not a pun. That's just whatever. I mean, it's it, it's a very fitting name for you know the company. It's their style for sure. Yeah, this is so much their style. So this was this big event in D.C., um, and Jeff Bezos came out and gave his presentation. Before we get to blue moon, what is interesting and a bit odd to me is that he did this whole presentation on O'Neill cylinders in space, and you know, like much more hundreds of years from now type of stuff. And I thought that was cool but i was like why is he presenting this this is a little bit off topic like maybe mm -hmm. he should stick to because he know, wasn't the presenting it to the space the space community he was presenting it to the general public well yeah he it seemed like he was sort of like leading them on let's lead on the general public and you know confuse what's uh, what are they called the adjacent possible you know and right, right. so yeah. it's like this is a little bit further out there, Jeff. And then he went to the whole reason why they were actually there, which was, you know, the Blue Moon Lander. And I thought that was cool. Like, okay, this is something that they actually... Actually sink your teeth into, yeah. Yeah. And it's something that he stressed that they had been working on for three years. So I guess this had been going on for three years and no one knew about it. Now, did anyone know, like, anything? Like, I can't remember if there was mention of some kind of a lander or or was this the first that we've heard of it? Because it's, it's the first that I've heard of it. Same here. I might have missed it as well, but I, I hadn't heard a single thing about this other than the name. I mean, I actually didn't even know that it was going to have that sort of uh, lunar module type design to it either. So like, I, I, I didn't know anything. I guess I could have, I'd never really sat and thought about what it would look like and whether they would do that same sort of approach to landing on the moon as Apollo, but evidently that's the goal. Well, I mean, how else would you do a landing on the moon, really, when you right. think about it? Well, I mean, I guess you could bring the... 
you know, rather than have a descent and ascent stage, just bring it all down and bring it all back up, right? Isn't that kind of SpaceX's idea with Starship? Maybe with Starship. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at the numbers, like, unless you refuel Starship in low Earth orbit, it's almost useless for going to the surface of the moon. It just, I mean, very, very, so low, low cargo capacity, especially considering like how large the vehicle is, you know? And then if you want to land it propulsively, that also drops your, your payload way down. Which I think you would have to do, right? I mean, how yeah. else can you land on the moon? So, right. So this is the well, more realistic kind of land it propulsively on earth. I mean, oh, okay. Okay. Right. Cause it's not, it's not going to have a free landing with parachutes. So star starship is way out there, right? Like that's a very unique sort of setup and leaving a stage on the moon is almost always going to be the way to go um mm. and so what what really is going to be valuable is designing a descent stage that's useful after it's been left on the moon you know so make it easy to deconstruct and easy to to turn into a habitat or to support a habitat sam in the chat has pointed out that this was actually announced back in 2017 so i mean but not the actual lander or any details but they did have a plan to go to the moon yeah and it says here that they were even talking about going to shackleton crater back then which is pretty mm -hmm. cool yeah um, so uh, we we missed that with the Endeavor photo. I don't think I heard anybody put those two together. Yeah, so this is going to be at Shackleton Crater, which is on the south pole of the moon. And the idea is to find water, right? Because you have this big crater where uh, there is no direct sunlight. And so maybe there might be water there. And so I guess that's the whole reason of going to uh, this particular location, which is kind of neat. The idea of going to the South Pole of the moon. I know, right? It just sounds more science fictiony than going mm -hmm. somewhere that's, you know, like <laughs> right there on the face of it. Yeah. So what are some details here that we do have? And this is more than I would have expected from Blue Origin. Yeah. So I guess related to since we're talking about water on the moon, and this was one thing that I thought was pretty interesting and also makes me a bit skeptical about this thing flying anytime soon or landing i should say anytime soon is that it's going to use liquid hydrogen and locks for its propellants instead of uh any hypergals and they also want to use that hydrogen for powering uh fuel cells so that way they can handle a lunar night no problem if there's a more extended uh, landing i guess but the idea was to use uh in situ resource utilization for refueling it while they're while it's there and that's something that I think is very far out there. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> that's not. Once I read that, I was like, "Oh, darn it! I'm not going to see them land on the moon in you know next decade." Well, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe just towards not, the end. Not building uh, Shackleton Camp or whatever. Like that's that's mm. way out there. They don't have to do the whole in situ resource thing just yet, right? I mean, they could just put the thing on the moon and stay for a couple days or months or whatever. And then that's the end of it. At least that's kind of what I thought. They don't have to do all this other mm. stuff necessarily. That's just if you want to stay semi-permanently or permanently and you want to get like a real infrastructure going on the moon, then, you know, sure. I think that maybe he was talking about like somewhere maybe a couple decades down the line. And, and Sam points out that, yeah, the the simple cargo lander is kind of the default that they were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's only that extended version that could even begin to think about bringing people back. So, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. If we're if they're presenting it as a future option, yes, this is definitely well mm -hmm. outside of the the common era or the the, the common period. We're we're pushing it way out there. 
So that first lander, the smaller version, is 3.6 tons to the lunar surface. The other one, the extended version, is 6.5 tons, and that you could put people in. And that one does look like an Apollo type of lander. Well, it's funny that you mention Apollo because the key there is that that's enough mass to fly the original lunar ascent module. Like That's why that number is important is because we've already done it with that amount of, of mm-hmm. mass. So. But the small version is the one that will have the... Uh, the little cranes or what they call like a davit, which is a term I'm not familiar with. Um, I didn't know what a davit was. Yeah, I learned that as well. <laughs> is it just a crane mounted on top of a vehicle? Is that what defines what a I think know, of the light, <laughs> light, the cranes that deploy lifeboats on the sides of ships. Seems like the easiest way to think of it. Okay. And that's also yeah. kind of how it looks when you show that little uh, mock-up, the illustration for the Blue Moon Lander on uh, spacenews.com. And I mean, and the, the crane, right, is used for basically they'll have a flat uh, a platform that they can kind of just put whatever cargo they want right on top and then lower it down with the crane or dab it. It's a very interesting look because, I mean, this is something that you can do when you're dealing with the moon because there's no atmosphere. You can just land a platform with no type of a fairing or anything. And so Mm. you just have this platform with little vehicles on top of it and a crane and all that stuff. And it just kind of sets down and then it just sort of plucks them up and sets them down on the lunar surface which is so weird but yeah i guess you could do that you know like you don't need <laughs> any kind of an aero shell or anything like that so it kind of looks like a flying one of those big offshore platforms that, that you see that drill for oil you know it oh, kind of yeah, looks yeah. like that that's a good way to yeah describe it so we we need to talk about be7 because it is very pretty yeah Heck yeah. Very pretty and very, I guess, ambitious. Now, the model that they showed, because they had a little model on the stage, which I assume was not a real engine. I suppose it could be because they've been doing some tests, right? They've been doing some. But it looked, was it me or did this look very simple? Like like there just wasn't enough there to account for a full-on Hydrolox engine. Or am I being crazy? it's so pretty. (laughs) I guess so, but it doesn't seem possible. (laughs) Um, Like there's bits missing off of that thing because it looked like a very lightweight engine. Yeah, so so, so Mm -hmm. my guess is, uh, and I could totally be wrong here, my guess is that it's the the propellant plumbing but none of the electronics and that's mm-hmm. that's what's gonna mm-hmm. you know make it a little less tidy but yeah i mean it is a very very uh simple plumbing scheme for sure so sam in the chat is pointing out that it's an expander cycle engine mm-hmm. i was not aware of that it's an expander cycle but it is a dual expander cycle right dual expander so it should be a bit more complex than something like rl10 so jeff bezos pointed out that this is going to get uh, ten thousand pounds of thrust and a specific impulse of 453 seconds um which someone in the audience had kind of laughed at that um i do remember that and he was like no no we'll get there but yeah that's a very impressive <laughs> number that's like you know space shuttle i guess like the rs25s and that might be about it do you know any or mm-hmm. does he i can't no. think of any other engine that gets that kind of specific impulse yeah so <laughs> sam in the chat says LE5A manages manages to get 452 with an open expander cycle. What? Yeah. How can you like getting 452 while continuously dumping fuel overboard? <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, but he he says that uh, you know it's understandable because there's some black magic in Japan that allows mm-hmm. them to do some crazy engineering. So, getting into the the actual use for this vehicle. So, mm-hmm. what Jeff Bezos was saying was that this is 
I guess, to help specifically Pence's 2024 target for putting people on the moon. And of course, this was only announced recently, but, and by that I mean Mike Pence's plans, but, so I guess it's kind of a coincidence that they have been working on this for three years, and now they say, hey, you know, we have this vehicle that might help you get there. So it's kind of a nice little synergy thing going on um, that Blue Origin didn't necessarily anticipate, but they're happy to be of service. But yeah, I mean, we'll see if this all actually works out. I would still like to just see a new Glenn launch. They haven't put anything into orbit, let alone on the surface of the moon yet. So this is my continual gripe with Blue Origin is that I just haven't seen any real demonstration yet that they can do this stuff. I mean, they have all kinds of factories and all kinds of just so much stuff, but they haven't actually done it yet. It's kind of the strangest thing because I can't think of another company that kind of works that same way, you know, like they've come so far but haven't actually gone that last mile to putting something in orbit so and now they have a lunar lander which i presume they're going to be putting up there themselves right like this is going to fly on new glenn they haven't said anything about launching with any other vehicle so this means that by 2024 ideally they'll be launching this on a new glenn but they haven't even done any test launches yet so I'm still kind of skeptical. Like, I believe them, but I kind of don't because you just, I don't know, you can't do that in this game because it's so hard to do. No, I, I kind of am with you too on that where they've they've been showing capability of, I believe that they're going to have, you know, space tourism soon, but that's mm -hmm. because they've actually been flying these new Shepherds and landing them correctly. Uh, but as far as, yeah, getting into orbit, getting to the moon, there's so much still to be seen. So unless maybe all this behind the scenes work means that it'll click rapidly. And then once they do start testing them in orbit and, you know, then yeah. maybe things will proceed a lot quicker than us watching SpaceX, how the sausage is made pretty much with them and seeing step by step and uh, yeah. test and test and failure and failure. You know, I mean, so long as so long as Amazon's making billions, I think I think this thing will end up landing on the moon. But just when is kind of the question for me. And I don't think 2024 is very realistic for anybody, uh, and especially not for Blue Origin. Well, g given how my prediction, any prediction I've ever made, I think, on the show has turned out wrong, <laughs> I just helped our uh, lunar ambitions, so mm -hmm. you're welcome. All right, short and sweet. We just got two this week, so extra short. And what is our first one, Dennis? So Virgin Galactic is coming to Spaceport America. Company executives announced that they will be moving their spaceship, carrier aircraft, and flight operations personnel to Mojave this summer. The move will happen after completion of the interior of the Spaceship 2 vehicle VSS Unity. The successful test of the VSS Unity in February is what prompted the move. Virgin Galactic is also updating the hangar for their vehicles at the spaceport, as well as nearing completion of its gas farm and antenna station. Though the move to Spaceport America will be complete by the end of the summer, executives didn't provide any word on when commercial flights will be available. Next up, uh, 60 Starlink satellites to launch on Wednesday. At least we think Wednesday, maybe Thursday. Elon Musk tweeted a picture of 60 Starlink satellites stacked in a Falcon 9 payload fairing on Saturday. They're described as flat-packed without needing a deployed mechanism. He also tweeted that these satellites are production design models, unlike the previous Tintin demonstration satellites that have been launched so far. Mr. Musk stated that much will most likely go wrong on this launch and that 60 more satellites are required for minor coverage and 12 more for moderate coverage. And if the mission's static fire on Monday is successful, the launch will occur on Wednesday from Cape Canaveral. So that'll be cool. That'll be the, the first of... How many did you say, Dennis? That's the first of 200 well, we launches? Got, yeah, if they do 60 at a clip to get 12,000, that would be 200 launches. <laughs> so this is the first of 200, 200 launches. <laughs> 
Maybe less if you can use the Falcon Heavy and put twice as many in there, maybe. Yeah, I wonder if that'll happen. So we have no questions, comments, or corrections, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And speaking of that launch, uh, that Falcon 9 Block 5 with uh, Starlink, uh, that will be on May 16th at 0230 UTC. So that's, so that's actually May 15th if you're like anywhere in North America. So it'll be about like, I guess, 9, 10 o'clock at night on the East Coast. And so about 6 or 7 o'clock on the west coast so yeah that's totally watchable uh launching from cape canaveral and the window for that is uh 0230 utc through 0400 utc so that's a nice long launch window mm. and so we have our second launch will be a uh, pslv ca which is core alone will be taking the ryset 2b uh an imaging uh satellite for the uh for isro and this launch will take place on may 21st at 23.57 UTC with a launch window from 23.30 to 23.59 UTC. And then we got one of these weird ones that doesn't quite fit in with the launches, but it's worth mentioning. So this is the Humans to Mars Summit is happening this week uh, from May 14th through May 16th. And it's all going to be live streamed. So you can go to h2m.exploremars.org and about halfway down the page, uh, they have a link to their livestream.com link. Um, and there are going to be a bunch of speakers, um, but I believe the keynote is going to be uh, Jim Bridenstine. Which ought to be pretty good. And evidently he's testifying at a Senate hearing that afternoon. <laughs> Oof. Oof. <laughs> It's going to be an emotional roller coaster for him. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So that means it's time to deorbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com so that's it we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you